Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 51. If you're younger than 30, I'll explain that blue machine. That's called a typewriter. And we borrowed it from the Smithsonian Institute and returned it right away. So uh, you can look that up if you'd like. Uh, Hey, if you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. And as has been explained very well throughout the morning, uh, we're in a series called Because God, focusing on what God has done and who he is reveals to us our purposes and our plan. Uh, Last week, uh, Michael talked about because God delivers, we can be delivered. And what does it mean to be in relationship with God where his purpose from our sin forward was to get us out of the mess we'd made of our lives? Today, the message is entitled, Because God is Merciful, I Can Repent. And I want to be crystal clear that today's message on repentance is universally applied to everyone in the room, whether you want to admit it or not. I know I'm right, that every one of us thinks we repent, but do we really And so today's message, although it's going to be a little bit confusing in my approach, I'm not going to try to explain to you how to repent. I only want to explain why we repent. And I want to talk about what that means. So if we have been delivered, am I the only person in the room who feels like sometimes my tires get stuck in a rut? And even though I don't want to go that direction, it seems the only way I can go. Seems like I'm constantly propelling myself in a direction opposite of where I want to be. Am I the only one? Or do we all understand that sometimes even being delivered, it's not easy to live the life we've been called to live? And so when we talk about this concept of being uh, stuck, can we really change? And what does it mean to repent? You see, when I think of repentance, I think of the words, I'm sorry. And that's not repentance. It's like the word apology. It's, a, it's one of those words that's so confusing to people because we say we apologize. No, all we did was say I'm sorry. An apology is actually an explanation for why we're sorry. This is why I did what I did. Here's why I felt what I felt, and I'm sorry I did that or felt that. But repentance for many of us, I think if we're honest with each other, at least if you're stuck with the same human nature that I battle every day, uh, we, what are we sorry for? Getting caught? being exposed for who we really are, or losing the image we wanted people to have of us. That kind of sorrow is not repentance. Repentance is actually a military word that means an about face. It means to change the direction, to get out of the rut you're in, to quit going down the habitual paths of sin and destruction and turn around and get your tires set on new ground, solid ground, and going a new direction following Christ. As Donna explained in the preamble to the 51st Psalm, this is a story, or this is a song that David wrote after one of the worst episodes of his life. And it was his fault. You see, David had a soldier named Uriah. Uriah was one of the 37 mighty men of David. And these men protected him and risked their lives to protect King David. Uriah had a beautiful wife named Bathsheba. And while Uriah was out fighting a battle on behalf of his king, David saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and he lusted after her, and he used his power, and he called her to his palace. And you might want to blame Bathsheba. I don't hold Bathsheba as accountable as some do. 
Because in that culture, for a powerful man like a king to call that woman to himself, she could not have denied him. Would have cost her her life. And so David commits adultery with her and he impregnates her. When he finds out she's pregnant, he calls Uriah home from the battlefield. And David, in a series of events, tries to do everything within his power from getting, his drunk, for getting him drunk to forbidding him to go back to the field so that Uriah will go home and he'll have sex with his wife and impregnate her in his mind. David does everything he can to cover his tracks. Everything he can do to to make the problem go away. If nobody knows, it's not an issue, right? This is what sin does to many of us. Uriah refuses to go because he's a man of integrity, unlike his king. And he refuses to go in and be comforted by his wife while his fellow soldiers and colleagues are out fighting in the field. So he sleeps on the porch. David finds out that there's no way he's going to bend the integrity of Uriah, so he decides to do the one last thing he can do to cover his tracks, He has Joab, the the leader, the commander of the troops, to put Uriah in the front because he's a fabled warrior and then pull the troops back so he's exposed and he dies. Bathsheba hears about the death of her husband and she mourns. And after the period of mourning, David does what a good king would do if he were a good king. He takes Bathsheba into his home as his wife in respects to her husband. She gives birth to the child, but there's complications and the baby's at risk. And David thinks he's covered his tracks. No exposure, no problem. Nobody knows it's not an issue. I've done it. And then Nathan walks in, the prophet. Nathan walks in and says, King David, I need to tell you a story. I need your help. He says, there was a man who had many flocks. There was a man who had one lamb. And the man who had the one lamb really loved that lamb. But the man who had many flocks had power and prestige. And he took the lamb from the man who loved it. And he slaughtered that lamb and fed it to his friends in a feast. David was furious. David said, as the Lord lives, that man should die. Who is that man? I want his name. Nathan said, it's you. In fact, the actual translation, it says, you're the man. Now on a golf course, we want to hear that. We'd like to walk down the halls of our school and have everybody go, that's this man right there. Look at her. She's it. You just don't want to hear it when you're wrong, right? Someone says, who did this? That one right there. In the worst moments, David is devastated. He blew up his life and everybody knew about it. And on top of that, the baby died. You see, how could he now be a king without any credibility? How could he ever face God again? He was plunged into a personal nightmare. How do you overcome that? He repented. Now, here's what I want you to remember. We're not talking about a formula. I'm not talking about this, if you do these three things, God's contractually obligated to forgive you. I'm talking about a relationship where the mercy of God is so compelling that we want to to repent. See, I don't want to tell you how to repent. I want to tell you why to repent and what to expect if you do. You see, David didn't just repent. He repented before God. He went to his father, his father, the one who had given him everything. And realizing what he had done, he asked God for more mercy. You see, David was called a man after God's own heart. And I used to believe that's because David was such a good man, such a perfect man, such a profound man, that he was better than the rest of us. But that's not what that means. When it says that David was a man after God's own heart, it meant when David made a mistake, he knew where to go. When David needed answers, he knew where to go. He was connected to God in relationship. 
That's why God asked him to be his king, because he could trust David, that David would seek him out. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 from the text, and I want to show you what David did. And then at the end of it, I want to tell you why he did it. He said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Interesting. I want to show you some things David did. I want to talk about how we repent and why we repent. The first thing I want to point out is that you need to engage your conscience with the truth. Engage your conscience with the truth. David said right there in the text in verse 3, I have done what is evil in your sight. Evil, that's an interesting word. I want to say this right now. The only way you actually repent is when you understand what God has told you is true. You see, we cannot look at sin from the viewpoint of others. If you look at sin from the viewpoint of your friends, they're going to tell you it's not that bad. If you look at sin from the viewpoint of culture, they're going to tell you no one's got the right to tell you you're wrong. If it feels good, you have the right to do it. If you look at sin from the way the world speaks about it, it's oppressive, it's old-fashioned, antiqued, and it doesn't fit anymore. But no, no, if we know who God is, we look at sin from God's perspective. Have, do you have a favorite picture of yourself? Now, I'm not being vain. Have you ever seen a picture of yourself and you're like, I need the copy of that? Because it looks like you think you look. Have you, now, that's fair, right? Because when you see a picture of yourself, you go, I don't have five chins. I'm not that unfortunate looking. I see every picture and I go, who's that? Photoshop. It's just mean. Every now and then I'll see a picture and I'm like, that's what I want to look like. Can you send me that? Have you ever taken a selfie? Come on, we've all made mistakes. (laughs) Have you ever taken a selfie and deleted it? Ladies, talk to me. You have. Have you ever, ladies, gotten mad at your husband for taking a picture of you and you said with this evil force voice, delete it? Why? Because the picture didn't represent how we want to be seen. It wasn't the way we want people to envision us. It was an unfortunate moment. We didn't look our best. We, we didn't want anybody to know that's the real us. The truth is we see it all the time. And if we don't see sin the way God does it, we just delete the images of ourselves we don't want to believe in. We don't want to believe we ever look like that, we ever act like that, we ever think like that. But deleting them doesn't change the reality, does it? We do think like that, and we do act like that, and when we're exposed, we're apt to lie. You see, the only way to understand and to engage our conscience with the truth is to know the truth. I will preach this until the day God lets me go home. And it's not because it's the, it's because I'm important. The truth is this. If you don't know the word of God, you cannot live the will of God. And the reason we have so much sin in our lives is we're believing what the preacher says on Sunday morning. We have no idea where he found it, where he got it, if he's even in there. You can't let your church be your moral conscience. You have to let the truth be your conscience. Jiminy Cricket lied to me. Your conscience can't be your guide. Because my conscience is all about me. How do I look? How do I feel? And what do people think? But when my conscience is led by the truth of God, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It only matters what he thinks. Has your heart ever misled you? 
Has your heart ever desired something that you knew was tragic and yet you wanted it? If your answer is yes, then your heart can't be your guide. What feels good often isn't. And what makes you look good often isn't the best thing to make you look the way you ought to be. We have to engage our conscience. Secondly, we have to take responsibility for our choices. Notice what David did here. David never denied. He said, I did evil. But he took responsibility for his choices. And he said, for I know my transgressions. Allow me to be a preacher here for about 30 seconds. Can we quit calling sin mistakes? Mistakes is when you stub your toe in the middle of the night on the end table because you weren't paying attention. Sin is not a mistake. It's not a poor choice. It's a willful act. It's to know what God wants and say, I don't care. It's to do what makes me feel good over and above everyone else's self-interest. It's a sin. David even calls it evil. But David had to take responsibility for what he did. He said, for I know my transgressions. We're able to do horrible things. We're able to do selfish things. We're able to break the rules because we think God likes us a little bit more than everybody else. Or we make this assumption, he hasn't busted me yet. So we play on the patience of God as if it's a hall card to go wherever we want, whenever we want. I think it's funny, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who got in trouble by his daughters because after church was over third hour and nobody was on the parking lot, he went out one of the exits and says, do not exit. And he said he got just judged all the way home. And I said, there was no one around. He goes, I know. But isn't that what most of us end up doing? Hey, there's no one around. It's just me and Bathsheba. No one will find out. I'll cover my tracks. It's my right, isn't it? You see, David had figured out he could cover this up, and it's just Uriah. But Uriah saw David differently than David saw Uriah. See, we say, I know this is against the rules, but I don't think God wants me to live a miserable life. Right? God wants me to be happy, as if the definition of happy that we have at our core is actually what's best for everybody involved. See, I don't want this to be hard today. I want it to weigh heavy on us. That we have to engage our conscience with the truth. And we have to take responsibilities for the choices we made. God appeared to Eve, and Eve said it was the serpent. God appeared to Adam. Adam said it was Eve. Everyone's looking to make their, their circumstances the reason for their choices, and they're not. Your circumstances may shape your choices, but they don't make them. Nobody opened Adam's mouth. Nobody made him bite down on the piece of fruit. He knew what the right thing to do was, and he chose not to do it. And what God wants to hear from us is, yes, I didn't choose you. Because that's the first honest thing we'll say. Yes, I chose myself over you, God. Which leads us to the third thing. Weigh the impact of sin. Weigh what's happening and what's happened because of it. David, David paid a great price for this sin. He didn't escape anything. See, he said, against you, you only have I sinned. Whenever the Jews would use a double word like that, this moment of doubling, they call it. You, you. Jesus would say, verily, verily, in some of your translations, or truly, truly, I say to you. It's a point of emphasis. And David says, it's against you, God. You only have I sinned. But let's call a time out here a second. Didn't he sin against Uriah? Oh, yeah. Uriah died because of David. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba and coerce her into this situation? Yes. 
So how can David say, it's you, God, only you are the one I sinned against? David is not pushing aside what happened to two people. What he's saying is, ultimately, the way he could treat Uriah that way was because he didn't respect God. The way he could treat Bathsheba that way and turn her in to a sexualized thing for his own pleasure, that's because he didn't respect God. You see, when you can look at another human being and see them as useful for your purposes, regardless of what they are, you're denying that the image of God lives in them. You're denying that the Spirit of God breathed life into them and they're alive in him. And that's that's why David could say, "I, I didn't just hurt a friend. I didn't just commit adultery. I offended my God by denying the same value to others that he's given to me. It's the weight of it. You see, the reason it's a sin to harm somebody else is because we're sinning against the image of God. 1 John 4.20, John wrote, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a what? How we treat other people for our own purposes is a statement of what we think about God. In Psalm 51.1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Some translations say, remove this sin from my account. But I want you to notice something here that I think is really powerful. Remember I told you, it sounds like I'm telling you how to repent. I'm actually not wanting to do that today. I want to show you why you repent. See, David's not saying, and I love this about this psalm. David doesn't say to God, if you don't hold this against me, I'll never do that again. He doesn't say, if you don't punish me right now, and I'll do more than I've ever done for you. David never makes repentance about his efforts, about his obedience, about how he'll become good at doing good. David only bases his repentance on the fact that God is merciful, that God loves him, that God is for him, not against him. Because there's nothing David could do from this moment forward that's going to bring Uriah back to life, that's going to save Bathsheba's reputation, and is going to bring that child back to life. There's nothing he can do to fix what he broke. But he understands the mercy of God is greater. When you're awakened by a fear of punishment, it may restrain sin, but it won't transform your heart. The reason we repent is to enter into a deeper relationship with a God who wants more for us than we've accepted. Verses 2 and 3. David says, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, and my sin is always before me. The consequences of David's sin did not change. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba shamed. The child's dead. David lost his kingdom. I don't know if you've read First and Second Samuel, but you're going to find out about David after his sin with Bathsheba. His son Absalom sees an opening in the kingdom, and he begins to campaign against his father. Absalom's a good-looking kid. He's charismatic. Everybody wanted him to, to be their leader, and David steps away because Absalom's trying to kill his dad. His whole family fell apart. Have you noticed that when you fall into the mercy of God, sometimes your circumstances don't change? But have you noticed that anybody who's ever fallen into the mercy of God doesn't care about their circumstances anymore? The consequences of life are what they are. But the mercy of God sees us through it, even when they don't change those circumstances. For many of us, we repent hoping that God will act like it never happened. I don't find any, listen to me, I don't find anything in the Bible that says God's going to act like it didn't happen. 
The consequences of the choices play out in every one of our lives. So we engage the conscience through the truth. We take responsibility for our choices. And then David weighed the impact of sin. And lastly, David let the change of repentance happen. He simply entrusted it. In verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 4, he says, You are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. See, David's not arguing anymore whether it's right or wrong. David says, I made the worst choice of my life. It was evil. It was sinful. I'm broken by it. And God, I sinned against you, ultimately. You are the one I rejected. You're the one whose presence wasn't enough for me. And I don't want to live this way anymore. It stands before me every day. I am a sinner. David is admitting in the presence of God that he's broken and needs help. I was in a Bible study where we were going through, and part of the process was everybody got to pick a psalm that they loved and they would teach us through the psalm what they loved about it and then our exercise every week which was really fun was to take that psalm and rewrite it now we have been encouraging people to read through all the psalms 150 different songs found in your old testament we started last sunday if you weren't with us here last sunday i want to encourage you you can pick up the reading list at the welcome center directly out the doors here you can go on the christ church app on your phone and pull it up or you can sign up on our web, our website so you can get an email every morning which is what I've chosen because I hate things in my inbox so I'm compelled to get rid of them so I read through the psalms so I can throw that sucker out it's worked but when I read the psalms one of the things that's effective for me is to how would I tell my fifth grade son what that psalm's about and paraphrasing and rewriting these psalms have proven effective for me here's one that was written about the 51st psalm several years ago Lord, I would love it if you got rid of the mess I've created in my life, but that doesn't matter. What matters is I know you love me, and I know you know I love you. And what I have with you is all that matters. The 51st Psalm. My consequences may not change, but I know you're with me, and I know I'm strong. And I know that I won't be good at being good, but you'll be there for me. You know, I think about it this way. When you think about what God's exchanged for us, we live in a world that says Clark Kent has to become Superman to save the world. But God does it completely different, doesn't he? God says Superman has to become Clark Kent to save the world. So he sent his son to show the mercy to a group of sinners like you and me who struggle every day to get our tires out of the rut, every day to become what we're supposed to become. So it does look like I told you how to repent, and I told you I wouldn't. Now I want to show you why we repent. Because repentance is not a key that opens a door that God once remained locked. Repentance is appealing before a God who can do only the work God can do. Look with me at verses 11 through 19. This is David weighing fully what it's going to take. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. If you notice, it's the mercy of God that leads us to repentance. It's kindness. It's not his wrath or our fear. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your goodness, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be a righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to light you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David says, there's nothing I can give you. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do except to fall on my face before you and admit I've sinned against you and what I've done is evil and I don't want to live this way anymore. See, David presents himself to the grace of God. He doesn't say, I'm going to become good at being good. He says, I'm not good at being good. It's what Paul says. I believe in Romans 7 when he says, I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do. I'm jacked up. But by your spirit, God, you bring life to me. So David says something fascinating here. He doesn't try to self-fix, promise, or promote. He doesn't say, well, I'm better than I used to be. He simply says, the only thing that appeals to you, Father, is a broken heart. A moment of real awareness. And then he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And for some of us, it's awkward because we think he lost the joy because he sinned. And I think it's just the opposite. I don't think David's saying, I lost the joy of my salvation because I sinned. I think what David's saying is, I sinned because I lost the joy of my salvation. I lost an understanding. You see, when you say the joy of your salvation, some of us think back to a point in time where we made our confession of Christ and were baptized into Jesus. Or we, we, we said a prayer or spoke a truth and we said, from that moment on I was saved. And we say, I wish I could remember what it was like to be nine years old in the front of Northway Church of Christ, standing there with my dad and my preacher and saying to the church, I believe Jesus is who he said he was. It may be that, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. The joy of your salvation is if you woke up today knowing the God of the universe cares about your day. That's the joy of salvation. It's not that a long time ago he gave me a hall pass that will get me from one corridor to heaven. No, today's the joy of our salvation. Today the God of all mercy looks down and says, you are a mess. But Superman became Clark Kent. So you'd understand he loves you more than you love yourself. Is that the kind of God you can repent toward? That's the only kind of God you can repent toward. Because every other ruler in your life wants you to earn it. And our God says you can't. So he sent Jesus. It's at this moment we're going to take the emblems of the Lord's Supper. We're going to take a piece of bread and a cup of juice. Because God said in this powerful moment to all of us, your sin is destroying you. It's not making you happy. It's not making you comfortable. It's not making you satisfied. It's making you hungry for something it can never give you. But he said, I'm going to send my son in the humble form of a man. And he is going to show you the truth. He's going to show you my power. He's going to show you my forgiveness. And he's going to place himself on a cross. And he's going to give his life up for yours. God giving up the best for the broken. The healthy for the sick. The perfect for the evil. He says, I'm going to do that for you. And his body and blood will represent to you the mercy. On the day that the church began, 
Peter stood in front of a crowd of well over 3,000 people. And he told the story of a God who would send his son in a merciful act to an evil people so that they might know his mercy and by his kindness repent. And the crowd heard this amazing story and was moved to its core. And somebody cried out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people that day, realizing the mercy of God, having nothing to do with their own perfection, having nothing to do with their own knowledge, 3,000 people plus that day made a choice to rely on the mercy of God. And they repented of their willfulness, received his mercy, and tried to live to the glory and honor of his name. And the book of Acts tells the amazing story of a movement that includes you and I even today. So I have to ask you, church, anything to repent of? I know some of us sit here today and you say you're not a believer and you're sitting this whole time going, wow, this was heavy. Yeah. Can you see that the ways of God are for you, not against you? Can you see that all of us in our heart have rebelled against God's ownership of our lives because we're fearful that he'll control us instead of grace us and love us and lead us? And for many of us here today who are believers, who have made a profession of faith, who try to get out of the ruts and get back on this foundation with Christ, going in the same direction, we find ourselves going back to things that we don't want to go back to because we're not strong. We're trying to do it on our own. Today is a day of repentance. If you're ashamed today to say, I'm a sinner who needs Jesus Christ, you are betrayed in your own mind. I'm telling you the greatest thing you can do in your life is to say, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus Christ because his mercy leads all of us to repentance. And today these symbols of the bread and the juice represent hope. This Jesus, who came from the best parts of heaven to the worst parts of earth, he came so that you and I could understand by his body and by his blood we're forgiven. That's our hope. And that's our purpose. Let's pray. Father, as we receive these emblems today, may our hearts truly repent. May we not repent symbolically. May we repent sincerely to a God who loves us, to a God who's greater than our sin, to a God who has paid the price in his son by sending him to die a horrible death so we would not face the consequences of our eternal choices. God, for sparing us from this horrible torture and allowing us to walk in a new way, led by a new spirit. Father, we are a grateful people. We take and eat today in remembrance of Jesus Christ, our mercy, our compassion, our Savior, and our love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.